What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, this is your host, Ben Picolsi, bringing you the greatest guests and the greatest information on the planet to help you live your greatest life in a body you love. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at NED. If you're not already taking CBD, NED CBD products have over 2,000 five-star reviews, and they're working with some incredible research teams to optimize their product. Um, NED has been a product that I've recently been adding to my repertoire just to see what it's doing ultimately to systemic inflammation, maybe to improve sleep a little bit. If you're someone who uh, is interested in optimizing stress levels, NED ultimately has incredibly high quality CBD products that with um, you know full spectrum CBD derived from hemp. So there's actually no THC for those people out there who are concerned with maybe the psychoactive effects of cannabis. And I'm being honest, I I never was a cannabis user, never was a fan of it. I've tried it, but never been a great fan of it. So personally, CBD in my eyes has to be in the absence of THC. I just don't like the way I feel on CBD, on THC. Now, I think there could be value in THC, but in general, uh, I like to stick with um, CBD products that uh, are absent of THC and Ned meets all the highest quality standards that exist. And you guys can head over to Hello Ned. H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash muscle. They get hooked up with 15% off. That's helloned.com slash muscle and use the code muscle at checkout to get hooked up with 15% off. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Organifi. Um, you guys know that for a long time, I've been a fan of greens and reds specifically. I think every man should should be taking greens and reds really every day. Women too. Uh, women, I find, tend to like the gold. It tends to be very soothing. It's like a treat after dinner. Uh, the greens specifically, uh, guys, if you're not already taking it, you need those micronutrients. You want those phytonutrients. You want to cover your bases. I, for a long time, probably 20 years, I've always been taking some semblance of a green product. And Organifi is the one that I'm taking right now. It's an incredibly great tasting product. Oftentimes they taste not very good. Uh, Organifi tastes amazing and it works really well. 100% organic. It's also loaded with adaptogens to help you recover uh, adrenally so you're not stressed or you're not overly stressed recovering from that. And specifically the reds. If you're training, you should be taking some type of reds, which ultimately is a derivative of beets and berries and things like that that allow the dilation of the blood vessels, right? We want to dilate our blood vessels so our penis works, so our muscles work, and we get great pumps. So if you guys aren't already taking Organifi, head over to Organifi.com slash muscle and get hooked up with 20% off. What does it mean to be remarkable in your life? So be remarkable in your training, be remarkable in nutrition, right? Sometimes we set ourselves, or we, keep, we hold ourselves to a very low standard. I think that is why a lot of people don't often achieve their goals is one, their goals aren't big enough because maybe they don't believe in themselves. And two, they kind of accept some like mediocre, mediocre standard. And, you know, I don't want to make this at all about me, but one of the things that was the greatest gift that I've ever received in my life was in 1998, I was 17 years old, and I was 160 pounds. And my dad took me to the Mr. Olympia contest. And at that point, uh, I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And uh, I knew what the standard was. I knew what it needed to look like. So when I started to become the biggest guy in my school and the biggest guy in my gym and then the biggest guy in my province and my country, it wasn't enough for me. I was like, I don't really care. Like I'm not, I'm not aspiring to be the biggest guy in my gym, right? I want to be the best in the world. Not so that you guys have the aspiration to be the best in the world, but what I encourage you all to do is create a standard in your mind. So one of the things that we're doing internally here with the team was we're all doing an, a 60-day transformation. Some of our coaches are, are putting out a bunch of muscles. Some of our, our coaches are getting in the best shape of their life. And one of the things that I personally do is I like to put up a visual representation of the standard I'm trying to achieve. That could be an old picture of myself. That could be a picture of somebody else, but it can be anything. And I encourage each and every one of you guys to start creating that visual representation of what you want your end result to look like. Because it's so important that you see it. Because sometimes life gets busy, doesn't it? Gosh, I got so much to do. I got so many things in my mind. Sometimes I forget that I need to eat. Sometimes I forget what my goal is in the gym. But if I wake up every day and on my on my mirror is my image, or on my fridge is my image, or in my phone is my image, and I see it constantly, like, hey, this is what I want to look like, then it's just a constant reminder of where you're going and that you're still on the journey, right? Sometimes people have a picture of a mountain. I used to do that. 
because I know that every day is just one step up the mountain, right? So I just want to start with a little bit of kind of, um, you know, focus for you guys, getting you a little direction, a little clarity on ultimately how you're going to hold yourself to the highest standard. Sometimes in our mind, we create things that we, we create things that seem like mountains, don't we? Like when we talk about, I want to lose 30 pounds, or I want to gain 20 pounds of muscle, or whatever your goal might be, your mind starts going, oh my goodness. Like it starts looking at the peak of the mountain. So it's going, I, I, I did that to myself. Like, I don't know if I can get there. Right. But you can't, like, you can't do it in one day. You can't control what happens tomorrow or the day after. What you can control is today. And so, if you learn to focus on the present moment, focus on today, all of a sudden it's a very different perspective. Right. It's a very different uh, time horizon. It's like, I just have to win today. How do I become the best version of myself today? And if I can do that, all of a sudden it's a little less pressure, isn't it? Like, I'm just going to eat really well today. I'm going to train today. I'm going to take all my supplements and make sure I get my movement. I'm going to sleep well. And I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to celebrate my win today. And I'm not going to put huge amounts of pressure on tomorrow. Because I think sometimes if you're like, I'm trying to lose 30 pounds in 90 days, like, wait, that feels like a lot, doesn't it? It feels like you're never doing enough. The reason I coach and the reason I think I'm a great coach is because I believe in you, all of you, more than you believe in yourself in many cases. And I know what you're capable of more than you know what you're capable of. Do you know why? Because I didn't believe in myself in the beginning and I just kept going and I did so much more than I thought I could. And I've coached thousands of people to a standard that is above what they previously believed they could achieve. So when I look at you and you're like, I want to put on like three pounds or five pounds, I'm like, fuck that, double it. We can do so much more than you think. You're capable of a lot more than you believe. But a lot of people ask questions about carbohydrates and are carbohydrates good and are carbohydrates bad? And there's a lot of nuance in that conversation. I could probably spend a couple hours just talking about carbohydrate. I won't do that. But the way I like to frame carbohydrates are, are as such. Um, carbohydrates are not bad, right? Carbohydrates are not bad. Carbohydrates should be viewed from a perspective of earn your carbohydrates. And just being alive, just being awake there's always going to be a, some demand placed on your body, no matter what. So you can always consume some amount of carbohydrates. All, like people who have this mentality of all carbohydrates are bad, it, it's not accurate, right? If you're metabolically broken, if you have metabolic dysfunction or dysregulation, then carbohydrates may not be a good idea for you. But in general, if you're training every day, and uh, you're ultimately not eating an excess of total calories, then there's nothing inherently wrong with carbohydrates. And I've changed my mind on this over years, right? I've previously been told like, hey, carbs are bad, don't eat carbs. And if I'm being honest, I don't eat a huge amount of carbs because I don't train the same way I used to. But if I was training hard and I wanted to build muscle, carbohydrates would definitely be a big part of my plan. So the way you guys should start framing carbohydrates is simply ask yourself, did I earn my carbohydrates? Because your body earns carbohydrates through exercise, through motion, through challenge, through muscle contraction, right? So if you guys, at some point in your life, you've all experienced the burn, you've all experienced lactic acid, or what we actually know it's hydrogen burn. It's a, it's a shift in the pH in your body, right? You feel that the acidity accumulating when your body's doing that, that lactate accumulation is actually a sign that your body's using carbohydrates for fuel. Therefore, I like to think of muscles like a sponge. If I go and train and I'm wringing out the sponge, now the sponge is dry, or at least it's not soaked, I can reapply or reconsume carbohydrates and then wet the sponge again, right? Carbohydrates are like that, that water in the sponge. And if I overconsume, the sponge is wet. And then body goes, sorry, man, I got no more place to store this, this energy. I'm going to throw it into my fat cells. So you have two places to store carbohydrates, muscle cells and liver cells. And they kind of act differently, but in general, it's just an important thing to know. And once they're full, the body won't store them there anymore. It can't. So the body very quickly can turn sugar into fat. So it's important to know that. The other thing that's important to know when it comes to carbohydrate is this is a this is a reality that you all should know is if insulin is elevated you're storing nutrients period if insulin is low you're burning nutrients period say it again insulin not not sugar insulin so there's a difference there right so my, uh, insulin is elevated 
from, from the consumption of carbohydrates. My body stores protein, my body stores carbs, and my body stores fat because insulin is elevated. If insulin is low, the body's burning nutrients. So the body can burn fat and carbs and protein because insulin is low. Now that's important to know because if I want to burn fat, the only time I burn fat is when insulin is low. Yes. So if I want my body to use more fat for fuel, I want to be aware of keeping my insulin low more often. So there's a lot of nuance there, guys, to understand how to consume carbohydrates and how much to consume. So let me give you a general rule that I apply. If you're metabolically healthy, which in my mind means, um, this is I guess, an important definition. So if you don't eat for, let's say, say we wake up in the morning and you don't eat till 11, 12. If you're someone who gets like hangry, like I have to eat, that probably tells me you're not metabolically healthy. Someone who's metabolically very healthy could not eat for a day or two days, and they'll feel a little bit of hunger, but they still have a, a consistent energy level. Why? Because when they're not eating, insulin levels are low, their body's dumping uh, glucose and fat into the bloodstream, and the body's using it really quickly. Right? Somebody who's metabolically maybe a little bit broken, th their insulin levels will start to come down. The body goes, shit, I don't know what to do dumps glucagon, drives up glucose, and the glucose stays elevated. And the body doesn't use nutrients really well. So you, you start feeling like your, your energy levels are going like this. Your body's going, trying to regulate, doesn't regulate consistently. So if you're someone who, if you don't eat for three or four hours, you feel like you're very, like um, literally hangry, right? You start to get a little ornery, then uh, it's probably to do with some type of metabolic inflexibility or metabolic uh, just ultimately ineffectiveness. So we're going to aspire to fix that relatively quickly. And it's not complex. It's, it's kind of simple. Uh, it can take time, but it's not complex. So if you're metabolically healthy, I like to start with about one gram of carbohydrates per pound per day. If you're training every day, right? So if you're training every day, let's say I'm, you know, 240 pounds, I'll consume 240 grams of carbohydrates a day on average, if I'm training every day and I'm training hard every day. Right. So I would say on average, that's a good place to start for most people. If you're not training hard or you feel like you're metabolically inflexible or, or metabolically broken, immediately we cut that in half. And we say, we'll start at half that. If you're someone who has insulin resistance, we know you're insulin resistant, we'll cut that in half again. So if I was insulin resistant, 240 pounds, I'd start at 60 grams of carbohydrates a day, which is basically like ketosis, right? 60 grams of carbohydrates a day is about a ketogenic state. One of the things that I'm most fascinated um, in is insulin's role in one fat storage, um, ultimately fat loss. So my audience is obviously very, um, very much interested in like mechanistic fat loss. How do I optimize yeah. this process of fat loss? And I know one of the things that you study a lot is insulin's role. And you brought that up as far as like one of your, your previous or most recent studies. And I'd like to just maybe start going down the path of discerning between um, insulin's role in fat storage and, and, and glucose. So there's a lot, I know you, you do some work with levels. And so levels obviously studying blood glucose and people are, are placing a lot of value on the numbers of the blood glucose as far as its relevance in fat storage and fat loss and all these other you know potential implications in body composition. And I'm curious if you could just discern between uh, insulin's implication or what you know of insulin's implication in, in that process as compared to glucose's implication in that process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of a yeah. broad question. But. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. So glucose alone has no um, fat inducing potential on its own as a nutrient, uh, even though it, it can be used to build a fat molecule and glucose can absolutely be turned into fat. The liver does that very, very well. And so do fat cells. I know there's some debate. There are many people who say that does not happen to fat cells. That is absolutely false, categorically false. A fat cell is absolutely capable of turning glucose into fat. Um, however, the size of the fat cell matters. I hate for this to be too much of a tangent, so I'll be brief. But when fat cells are smaller, they're able to convert glucose into fatty acids much more readily. When a fat cell is reaching maximum dimension and has hypertrophied, then glucose is providing less of a fuel and the glucose is going to the smaller fat cells. At that point, it's mostly just bringing in fat. But nevertheless, glucose on its own 
isn't going to stimulate the lipogenic machinery. It has to come with insulin. And of course, in the body, it does. If glucose has come up, insulin is as well. And insulin is now telling the fat cell what to do with the glucose. It's telling every cell what to do with all nutrients. Even in the cells where insulin isn't necessary to signal glucose uptake, because not all cells need insulin to pull in the glucose. Many, the vast majority of the cells just pull in glucose whenever they want. Whenever glucose is climbing, it just goes into the cells. The majority of them, except for fat cells and muscle cells, where insulin plays a role in mediating that. But even still, at literally every cell of the body, because literally every cell of the body has insulin receptors, insulin's kind of thematic effect from head to toe is telling the cells of the body what to do with the energy that they have. That's very important for people to realize because there is no capability in any organism from fruit flies to humans and everything in between for an organism to store fat unless insulin is elevated. It cannot happen. Now, some people are already misunderstanding what I'm saying. So I'm going to clarify what I'm saying, but just to make sure I've explained this well, it is impossible for an organism to store fat unless insulin is elevated over fasting levels. It cannot happen. Now, am I saying that insulin is the only cause for, for fat gain? No, but it must be part of the equation. There can be, in contrast, no fat growth unless insulin is up, and there can be no fat loss unless insulin is down. Now, there's so much nuance to this that is so lost in these conversations because immediately, I've had a, had a whole bunch of the audience immediately start to say, oh, Bickman's saying calories don't matter. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, of all the people anyone has heard talk about calories and its role in obesity, I may be, I won't say the most qualified, because that sounds too smug, but one of the most qualified. Because my, my actual dissertation and PhD work is in bioenergetics, the explicit study of energy in living organisms. I have a profound appreciation for calories and the laws of thermodynamics. I just think they are invoked very inappropriately in any living system. The laws of thermodynamics were never meant to apply to living organisms because it's too complicated. We are not the closed system of the universe, and it is impossible to account for every movement of every calorie or any energy unit in, in the body or any animal for that matter. And maybe I'll riff on that for just a moment. Yeah, please so do. Let, let's, take, let's take, for example, a type 1 diabetic. A type 1 diabetic learns very early that if he or she skips insulin injections, they can eat whatever they want. Literally, they can eat. This is a, a problem called diabulimia, where the diabetic learns, I can eat that chocolate cake. And as long as I don't poke myself with this needle of insulin, I will stay as skinny as I want to. And people will say, well, it's because all the excess calories, it, literally, Ben, you could have a diabetic eating 5,000 calories a day, and they will look scrawny if they're not injecting their insulin. Sorry, just to cut you there, one of my best friends was type 1 diabetic, used to do exactly that, just lost his leg because of it. So yep, interesting. Yep. So, so that's right. So yep. the consequences are catastrophic yep. because they're, key, they're in ketoacidosis, and they have, hyper, they have glucose levels that are 10 times higher than what they should be. And the glucose in particular is going to basically start ripping apart blood vessels and, and feeding infections and so losing legs. And so my, my irreverent kind of dark joke on that is the person will die early or, or have you know, serious health consequences, but they'll look great in their coffin. Yep. They'll be as lean as they want to. But imagine for a moment, everyone listening, just how tempting it is for that person totally. because they don't have to go through the physical pain an embarrassment of say of say bulimia and and I'm in no way speaking lightly on this these are serious topics but with bulimia for example it's the physical discomfort of having to vomit and and, and remove yourself from the social situation and go to the bathroom and you know it, it's terrible it, it's terrible but for the type 1 diabetic they can sit there and eat all of that stuff and they just don't have to poke themselves with a needle oh my gosh how tempting would that be to abuse that reality which is you cannot store fat unless your insulin is elevated. Now, again, as I was starting to mention, people will say, 
well, all those excess calories are just spilled into the urine as glucose. That is absolutely not true. All that glucose that's coming into the urine, accounting for the increased urine production is just a few hundred calories at most. What people don't appreciate is that when insulin is low, there are multiple variables that create this metabolically elevated state, which makes it easier to be lean. Now, and that is one, an actual, an actual increase in metabolic rate from, from head to toe. Metabolic rate is, we know in humans that have just low insulin, not type 1 diabetic, zero levels, low insulin versus high insulin based on meals, the, the, the metabolic rate will differ by 300 calories per day. And so this is the person who has this 300 calorie a day uh, wiggle room um, because their metabolic rate is simply higher when insulin is low. And my lab has studied some of the mechanisms for that. And two, when your body is making ketones, ketones are a very unique fuel. First of all, they have about the same caloric value as glucose does. So ketones are energetic molecules. They have a calorie load to them. But when someone has ketones, they're in ketosis, I won't invoke ketoacidosis at this point because we're talking about the non-diabetic now, but they are, remember a ketone is an energetic molecule and they are breathing them out or urinating them out. So when someone's in ketosis, they are exhaling ketones and they're urinating ketones. Every little molecule of the ketone is an energetic, it was a calorie that if we were just trying to invoke the laws of thermodynamics as, it is, as they are improperly invoked, we would say that you have to either burn it as energy, so exercise more, or you have to put less in the system or eat less. Well, when you're in ketosis, you've introduced this third mechanism, which is waste. You are literally wasting energy from your body. And so, yes, absolutely, calories matter. In that sense, the laws of thermodynamics are relevant, that you have to account for the energy. It's just when we try to account for the energy and the complexity of the human body, not to mention the complexity of having to wrestle with hunger, which I think is a vastly overlooked aspect, which maybe we can come back to. But nevertheless, calories matter. But if you're trying to understand human obesity just through a caloric lens, you will miss it. All you will do is promote hunger, and that will generally result in a short-lived success. You have to consider the role of insulin because it matters Absolutely. There can be no fat gain in a human without elevated insulin. It is impossible. There can be no fat loss in a human with, unless insulin is low. It's impossible. Yes, calories matter, energy matters, but so too does insulin. We must invoke both of these variables to truly understand. And maybe Ben, if you'll allow me, my, one of the reasons I am a little frustrated with the pure kind of caloric theory, if I'm going to straw man that argument, which is just, it's purely calories and hormones have nothing to do with it, which is wrong. But if I were to tell the audience uh, that we, I've arranged a, a dinner, it's a buffet and the world's best chefs are coming to prepare the most delicious food anyone has ever had. Everyone's invited. It's a buffet. I want you to come and eat as much as you can and just enjoy yourselves. And I would say then what would the people do that I've invited? What would you do to come as hungry as possible to my party? There are two things you'd do. You would start eating a little less in the days before the event, and you'd probably start exercising a little more. And sure enough, that is the perfect way to make sure you're hungry. But that's also the advice we've been giving people for 50 years on how to lose weight. We say eat less, exercise more. Yes, it's the perfect recipe for hunger, which means hunger is generally going to win. Now, I'm not saying there's no value in discipline in, in, in you know, knowing when you've eaten enough and learning how to push the plate away. But even then, that comes back to this idea of satiety. We need to focus on foods that tell our brain, you're good. You're good. You don't need any more. And we don't have to wait until our stomach is bursting to get there. It's that our, 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 our brain knows we are satisfied and we know from human studies that when insulin is spiked due to consuming refined carbohydrates, that satiety signal is weaker. When insulin is not spiked, like for example, by focusing on proteins and fats, then satiety is stronger. The satiety signal is, is more prevalent and thus hunger is controlled longer. So this is, I know I've been ranting for quite a bit, maybe just to kind of bring no, it this back. Is perfect. It's, no, it's that, good, good. Well, we, we have to consider the effects of insulin. 
Um, but I, I, I hate to say that because I know that there's always a certain population that immediately thinks, oh, Bickman's trying to deny calories. I hope I've made that clear. I am uniquely qualified to appreciate energy and, and what it's going to do. But a cell does not know what to do with energy unless it's told. It must be told. Uh, and maybe my, my last point on this, we grow fat cells in my lab, like right across the hall here in a little incubator, we have fat cells growing in little Petri dishes. These fat cells can be swimming in a sea of fats and glucose or fructose or whatever other nutrients we want to put around them, and they will not grow. Not at all. The moment we start bumping up the insulin, boom, now the fat cells start to swell. That is reflective to some degree or another, reflected in every cell of the body. Cells do not inherently know what they need to do with the energy that's around them. Hormones tell the cells what to do. That's so, so valuable. And you, you made a lot of things very, very clear for me there. Thank you. And for our listener, I'm sure. Um, so the thing that comes up, and, and this may not be something that you care to answer, is like, what, I mean, obviously, short of minimizing carbohydrate consumption and exercising regularly, is there anything else that comes to mind as far as, you know, um, lifestyle interventions or supplemental interventions that can help people minimize the insulin response of food or, or mm -hmm. the insulin response of, you know, of exercise, right? Of anything that's yeah. causing huge amounts of stress. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. Now, in fact, let's start with the exercise because I know that's so salient to this audience. I am an enormous advocate of exercise. There are a few things that are as insulin sensitizing as exercise is because you cannot have, in fact, Ben, it's interesting. You mentioned levels and now with the, the rise of the CGM, and the, the, the wearing of continuous glucose monitors, anyone who's listening to this, who's worn a CGM has noticed that they will go work out. If they hit it hard, boy, their glucose levels just have yeah. this big, steady climb. One of the reasons, in fact, the entire reason it's climbing is because of changes in hormones. Because again, hormones control fuel use in the body that's reflected in the glucose in the blood. But this is also a perfect example of when glucose and insulin get disconnected, exercise is the perfect example because insulin wants to store energy. Well, that is antithetical to exercise because exercise wants to use energy. We need to be mobilizing energy and burning energy. Insulin abhors that. And thus, during exercise, it's no surprise that insulin plummets. If someone were wearing a continuous glucose monitor on this arm and a continuous insulin monitor on this arm, may that day come sooner than later, um, significant technological hurdles to that. But nevertheless, they would see glucose climbing and insulin dropping. And it's because insulin knows this is not my time. I'll come up later today when you eat and recover and I'll help you recover. But right now, I mean, the body, it's always this dynamic system that maybe the simplest way of explaining metabolism in the body is breaking and building, breaking and building. And when we're exercising, we're breaking. Insulin can't break. It doesn't break. It only helps build or it, and it protects what's being built. That's actually the more accurate way of saying it when it comes to muscle. But nevertheless, glucose comes up in large part because insulin gets out of the way. But at the same time, other hormones that are insulin opposites are climbing during exercise, most especially cortisol, epinephrine or, or adrenaline, and glucagon. And then other ones like growth hormone and IGF-1 especially growth hormone, these first four hormones that I mentioned, cortisol, adrenaline, glucagon, um, growth hormone, they are all insulin antagonists when it comes to glucose. Every one of these hormones stimulates glucose production and release from the liver into the blood, driving the elevated glucose because they're all to a degree, well, growth hormone is a bit of an interesting one, but they want to mobilize energy. Uh, they want to start moving things into the body to be used for energy. And, and, and so we have this increase in glucose during exercise while insulin has come down. And so but one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I'm such a big advocate of exercise, in addition to that, if someone's performing exercises that are going to failure in some way or another, the intensity is sufficient, then they're getting, you know, a strong signal for muscle hypertrophy, which, which you and much of your audience, honest to goodness, knows more about than I do. Um, but more muscle mass means more of the tissue that consumes most of the glucose in the body. Let's talk about um, 
what you found to be the most effective fasting protocol? Because you've mentioned four or five days. We know a lot of people out there are doing, you know, time-restricted feeding windows. Some people are doing two to three days. And I'd like to have you just kind of maybe walk us through the benefits of each. So when you talk fasting, there's two general types of fasting. There's less than two days. We call it intermittent fasting. And then beyond two days, anything beyond two days, we call it prolonged fasting. In um, why it's two days? Because before two days, everything, every, any type of fasting, and we'll talk about the subtypes with less than two days. But if you fast less than two days, you have enough reserves in the body, whether it's the liver doing neurogenesis, whether it's, it's, it's glycogen, whether it's fat, you have enough reserves to utilize and go through the two days by just burning that reserve. Once you cross day two, you're getting closer to bankruptcy. And this is where now the body tells the cells, hey, I burned, I, I, I'm getting rid of my reserves, but you got now every cell gets to go and eat the debris, the organelle, meaning find calories inside the cells that you can eat and try to repair, try to optimize your performance. This is the process of autophagy, which a lot of us now in the last six years have, uh, have uh, fell in love in and, and tried to try to bring this miracle of biology back to human life because it's, it's, it's a way to put your body in check and rejuvenate. We lost that. We eat all the time. Um, our ancestors did not eat all the time. They migrated, they moved, they stayed, you know, they didn't have refrigerators. So going a day or two without food, it was, it was part of the diet. It was part of living on, on planet Earth. And the body used that stressful phase to go back and rejuvenate. And to, to simplify the analogy, if you want, if you're a CEO of a company and you need $2 million per month to operate, if I give you, you know, let's compare intermittent fasting or less than two days with the prolonged one. If I tell you, you know what, you need 2 million, so, or say 3 million, which is 100,000 a day. Well, the first day of the month, the first two days of the month, you're not going to get the revenue. You get it, you get it on day three. You'll be like, okay, my bank account will drop by two, 300K. So that's the fat with intermittent fasting drop but I'm not going to take drastic action. If you come to me as a CEO and you say, hey, you need 3 million, I'm going to give you zero for the first two weeks. Such a stress on the company. I got to go and restructure the company. I got to go and fix it. I got to cut this budget. I got to cut travel. I may let some people go. They're not doing their job right. So I go back and I start to structurally and functionally improve the performance and the cost effectiveness of the company. That's exactly why fasting becomes so famous in such a period of time because if you cross two days, your body is telling the cells, hey, you got to restructure, you got to become at, go at your best to survive. And this is why aging and fasting became related because you biologically rejuvenate a cell. It means you're getting a little bit younger. It means you're, you're gaining healthy life and it's a pro-longevity uh, technology. So below today's, it's, it's intermittent fasting. Above today's, it's longer fast or prolonged fasting. Under intermittent fasting, you can fast for a few hours. This is what you call the time-restricted eating. Within a day, 12-12, if you just do 12 hours of fasting, you sleep, and then you still have breakfast, but if you sleep at 8 or you eat dinner at 8, you go back to eat breakfast at 8, it's the 12-12. It's called circadian fasting, following day, day and night rhythm. Um, Walter Longo, Sachin, Panda are big proponents of this, and it's it's actually a good way to balance life. And, and we're almost sure that it's very good for longevity. Some people, because they carry a little bit of weight or they want to, or for some other metabolic reasons, they go to 16 hours. That's probably the most practiced fasting, 16, eight uh, intermittent fasting. Um, and then some people go all the way to one day. They do it twice a week, five, two fast. There's seven days in a week, five days you eat normal. Twice a week, you try to fast. And then the most extreme intermittent fasting is alternate day fast, one day on, one day off, which is a big yo-yo effect, actually. So we're not sure it's a pro-longevity one because there's a lot of swinging. But if you want to lose weight super fast, you fast every other day. You're going to lose the weight fast. So, but we're not sure how healthy that is. Now, although marketing-wise, people tell you you're going to do autophagy with 16 hours or 18 hours, that's not true for most people. That's not enough long enough. To, to deplete the reserves and get into cellular rejuvenation. Now, if you run 10 miles in the morning, 
you're so skinny and you're fit and you have very high metabolic rate, so you're burning a lot in the morning, then you create enough deficit at the cellular level, some cells will start autophagy. But it's exceptionally rare to, although again, a lot of uh, marketing is saying you do 16, you get an autophagy. It's rare to get autophagy before one or two days of fasting. That's a lot of great info. I'm, I'm curious if your thoughts around, you mentioned a few minutes back, like trying to find balance between long and strong. And, and so that's very subjective, right? So how does someone then decide, uh, you know, how much protein they should be eating? Is it, is it basically just personal preference? Like, hey, this is how I want to look. Because uh, obviously someone may want to be more muscular, someone will be less muscular. But if, if our exclusive objective is I want to live long and live well in old age, I want to be yeah. able to move well and be strong enough to move. Yeah. How do we start objectifying that instead of it being completely subjective? That, that's a fantastic uh, question. And, and we do say that you, you have different protein needs depending on the, on the cycle of life, right? When you're below age 18 or 19, you, you're, you're you know, aging and, and the disease risk is super low and you're growing even physically and vertically. So you need a high protein intake, that's for sure. The, the more you get closer to your mid-adult years, and especially that 40 to 60 or 35 to 60, this is the pre, this is the pre-disease. This is the, this is a very important age. Um, so, so up to 18, you need high protein, 18, 20 to 30, 35. Again, you're still young, you're still vibrant. You want to build muscle. It's fine to have a high, high level of protein. It gets tricky when you get into that pre-cancerous, pre-heart attack age of 50 to 60. And this is where you want to be careful. So train your muscle, keep the exercise, but don't over, don't increase a lot the intake of carbs and protein because this is where in, 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 you know, cancer starts and just, just let's take cancer example, because cancer, a lot of the articles are showing is, is boosted by the protein intake. Um, you know, when you eat protein, IGF increase is stimulus to cells to replicate. Hey, we're happy. We have a great signal of food. Let's replicate. Let's grow. And a cell is replicating, does a mistake and doesn't stop replicating, keeps going, going. And that's cancer. Cancer is a cell that keeps going, replicating with no inhibition. So when you're 40 to 65, your cells are Young enough to replicate, to respond to versus this is why you don't get most of the cancer at age 90, because at age 90, the cells don't replicate. So they're not going to, they're not going to do that mistake and become, become cancerous. So your, the cells respond to food signal. They will respond to protein and replicate. So the signal of replication is there, but they're 40 years old and 60 years old. So they, they're prone to mistakes. This is why that's the peak age for, for, you know, a lot of breast cancer happens during that age. A lot of other cancers happen to us at 50 to 60, 65, where the, the cells are responding to food, but they're old enough to do a mistake and become cancer. In that age, you want to preserve muscle, but you don't work to grow and over protein, you know, uh, over, over protein. So when you go above 65, your absorption rates are lower. Muscle is an organ of longevity your cells are not responding fast to protein because they're too old to replicate. This is where you go back and you increase the protein intake to protect the muscle. So again, a lot, a lot more science is needed there, but today's thinking and today's early science is showing that this is the life cycle of protein you want to follow within, within your, within your lifespan. Hey everybody, we'll be right back to the show after a quick message from our sponsor. Thank you very much to today's show sponsor, Vuori, V-U-O-R-I, my favorite athleisure gym wear that ultimately I wear yoga, I wear train, I wear around the house, I wear when I'm going out because it just looks awesome. Quality of the material is amazing. You guys should absolutely check it out and support our amazing sponsors at Vuori, that's V-U-O-R-I.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off your first order. Take advantage of this now. It's an amazing product. You will not regret it. I really love the product. They fit really well. It's super high quality stuff. I've had some of the garments for over four years. I actually first got them when I was out in Lake Tahoe at a mind pump event and uh, receive some of their clothing. And I wear it still to this day. Their shorts are wear to the gym. Their shirts are wear to train or wear them to yoga. Just really high, high quality stuff. Performance athleisure is how I would categorize them. So that company, again, is Vuori. And that's V-U-O-R-I.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off for a limited time. 
All right, ladies and gents, today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Buy Optimizers. They have done it again with a ketogenic optimization product. If you're someone who's consuming uh, fat, if you're someone who's consuming a ketogenic diet, optimization of digestion, absorption, assimilation is incredibly important. Capex is the product that was designed to rev up your cellular metabolism, ultimately energy production, energy capacity, specifically from fat. The ingredients in this product are all specifically chosen to optimize the ketogenic state, optimizing mitochondrial energy production, uh, optimizing the delivery of the fat into the mitochondria, and ultimately helping with the breakdown of the fats. And ultimately, just so you feel really, really great on a ketogenic diet, it's got some great um, astragalus in there. It's got some panics, ginseng, some things to, to help with brain function and metabolism. So our friends over at Bioptimizers are going to offer you guys 10% off and you can use the code MUSCLE10 when you head over to kenergize.com. That's the word energize with a K in the beginning, K-E-N-E-R-G-I-Z-E.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 10% off. I'm curious what it was about you at such a young age that drew you to the desire to help people. It's not a very common thing that a 13-year-old would be drawn uh, to. What are you, psychic or something? <laughs> when I was nine years old, um, I had a brother that died. Um, I was nine, he was three. Um, and my parents, um, he died suddenly of a rare kind of yeah, kidney cancer. My parents were not religious. They had nothing in terms of dealing with it. So the whole family collapsed. Out of that collapse, I became a leader of the family at age nine. And I, I, a whole other story about my father. I became his psychiatrist. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I, I seemed to have, I had an optimistic, soothing presence. Let me put it that way. Well, here's the thing. My father wanted me to be a doctor anyway, but after my brother died, he really wanted me to be a doctor. Um, and because it was, it was New York, you know, there were various violent things happening, one of which was um, one of my friends was thrown down an elevator shaft. He, he lived. So we went to visit him in the same hospital, Metropolitan Hospital, where I was trained, just by coincidence. When we're walking out, of the hospital after having seen him, my father turns around, he points to the hospital and he says, that's the only profession. He goes, that's the only, which means it doesn't matter what else you do in life, you're a fucking failure unless you become a doctor. So my, my younger brother died, so that was part of the, my, my life's mission was, would be to fight death. I mean, now it sounds insane. Um, and then I had this experience down the elevator shaft where it was reinforced. Um, the funniest thing of all of it is in my family's psychiatry was nothing. It was completely looked down on. It wasn't real medicine. But my father, to his credit, he, he said, you, I'm going to pay for medical school. You just have to graduate. You can take whatever you want. And so I took psychiatry. Well, I felt plenty guilty about it because I enjoyed it. It was the only thing in medicine I, I really enjoyed. Did that answer the question? I, I don't remember. It very, very much answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to have uh, maybe Barry, you could kind of walk down the path of telling us a little bit more about the reversal of desire, because it sounds like for both of you, that maybe is the most impactful tool. Yeah, it's certainly one of the most impactful tools. Just to back up for a moment and fill in, you know, some of what Phil was talking about, you know, up until the time I met Phil, I understood what traditional psych psychology was about, which was it was premised on a false premise. And the false premise was in order to overcome problems, you have to dive deeply into what caused the problem. Now, if just a moment thinking about that, it doesn't really make any sense. You know, you don't need to know how your toilet got stuck in order to unstick the toilet. And yet, when it came to the human psyche, traditional psychology believed that you needed to delve into causation in order to solve the problem. When I met Phil, it was such a revolution in my thinking, because what he said was, 
No, you don't need to understand it. And even if you do understand it, that's not actually going to solve the problem for you. What you need are forces that don't feel like they're available to you when you're experiencing the problem, which gets us to the problem of avoidance. When you're afraid to do something or when you can't get yourself to, you can't discipline yourself to sit down and write or do a task or write an email or anything that, you know, we all avoid a wide, wide variety of things. What's happening inside of you is that you're a little bit afraid of the pain that is involved in moving forward. Whenever you move forward and do something, even if it's something you want to do, there's a little bit of pain and discomfort attached to that. A, because you don't know what's going to happen, and B, because it requires effort. And effort, you know, we're all lazy. We'd rather not expend effort than expend it, okay? Which means that in order to move forward, you need to change your relationship to pain. You need to accept that pain is actually part of life, that pain is actually part of moving forward. I mean, I see you nodding. I'm sure that you're incredibly familiar with this as a trainer because you got to get people to face pain all day, every day. So the, the secret of the reversal of desire is that it takes our normal desire, which is to avoid pain at all costs, and it reverses it. It says, bring on the pain. Are we saying bring on the pain because we're masochists? No, we're saying bring on the pain because pain is an absolutely necessary part of life and you can't move forward without facing it. And by desiring it, you shift the direction that you're moving in. Generally, we move away from pain. When you desire something, you move toward it. And the moment you start to move toward pain, something really magical happens. I'm amazed even now, after I've used the tool for 35 years, you move toward pain and you feel free and excited to embrace it, strangely enough. You don't feel pain, you feel excitement, euphoria almost. So that's the way the reversal of desire works. Yeah, and that, that's what the last program was, the law of pain, which is if you confront pain and go into it, it actually diminishes. If you back away from it and try to avoid it, it gets bigger. And that's the law. You can try it in small things, big things, where. So it sounds like there's a bit of the New Yorker in in this uh, tool, right? There's the the a bit of like the you know, I hear kind of the New Yorker coming out. It feels like the New Yorker, like bring it on. I love pain. Pain sets me free. That little bit of like New Yorker's edge. Do you think it was part of that that kind of uh, initiated this tool? We'll say. I do in a way. I mean, in the most superficial way. I mean, yeah. he took it and ran with it, so to speak. But yeah, yes, it was. It was the the main thing was schmuck. If you're going to take people's money and time and claim you're a doctor or whatever, you better deliver something. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an ethos. And I never thought of it as a New York thing. But, yeah, it, it is a New York thing. No question. Uh, yeah, in California, we would just talk it to death. <laughs> <laughs> there, there may not be that New York swagger if it was in California, right? It'd be kind of like the, the soft, like cushy landing rather than like yeah. the, we're going right through it. Kind of a, Kind of an off... Topic question, still on topic, but but a little bit of a tangent. Someone who lacks trust, right? So um, it seems as though that uh, some clients I experience, including myself at times, uh, have an innate lack of trust for authority. So for you know my parents, for is that something that you would recommend one of the tools for? Yeah, I don't know that there's a you know a single specific tool for that, but see the truth is. Tools evoke forces that you weren't aware of prior to that. You just felt stuck, you know, and you weren't aware that there was something there that could actually help you. When you use tools, regardless of what particular tool you're using, and you use them over and over and over again, and you start to experience these, I I hate to use this language because it sounds so cheesy, but these helping forces, like, However you explain them, you could call it God, you could call it forces in your your unconscious. Working for you rather than against you, basically. Exactly. What starts to happen is you start to trust something higher than yourself. And that changes your entire relationship with authority. I, I guess what I'm really saying is that authority figures are really just 
avatars or stand-ins for your relationship with something higher than you, however you want to define that. And when you can start to trust that, then you can start to trust them. And the trust is more real because you're not, in other words, part of the reason we don't trust authority figures is that they're fallible. And we know that they're fallible. And so we're wary of putting our trust in them. Higher forces are infallible. And when you can trust them, then you can trust a, a physical, literal, human authority figure, knowing that he'll probably make a mistake at some point and it won't be the end of the world. You know, it's like right. he, he can be human, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, ladies and gents, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your ear. I appreciate your trust. I realize there's thousands and thousands, if not millions of podcasts out there now, and you continually choose this one. And I don't take that lightly. I hope to bring you, continuously bring you new and amazing and insightful, valuable information on how to ultimately live your greatest life in a body you love. So if there's some specific topic you want to hear from me, head over to Instagram and leave me a message. You can send me a DM. You can also leave us a review, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, or on Spotify, and tell us. Uh, what you want to know, which, who you want to hear us talk to, what, what conversations you want to hear us have. And I don't ever want to continually have the same people over and over again, but, uh, you know, so I'm continuously looking for great guests to bring you the best information in the world. So ladies and gents, without further ado from me, uh, I really hope you enjoy the podcast. I really hope you're having an amazing day. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for making the time. Uh, it's truly an honor, truly a privilege to continue to be able to do this and bring you the best information from the world's brightest humans. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.